Good day to all of our investors and general listeners. This is the Rudd Commentary. My name is Josh Rudd, and I'll be your host on this presentation today. And with me, as always, is Jack Herr from our Capital Markets team to bring us up to date on what's going on in the financial markets. But for our new listeners who may not be familiar with our firm, the Rudd Company is a wealth management firm headquartered here in Fort Worth, Texas. We manage investments for successful families and organizations across the country and become your personal wealth manager, confidant, and CFO, so you can relax and focus your time on what's important to you. Jack, tell us a little bit about what's going on in the financial markets for the month of February. Yeah, Josh, a bit of a rocky start this year in the markets so far. One of the things we've been really focused on in the trading room is interest rates and trying to determine where those are going. So, in late 2021, the Federal Reserve, they kept sticking to their narrative, saying inflation was transitory, only predicting about three rate hikes in 2022. But we've seen quite a change, haven't we, Josh? We did. And we also got the rumor of a, of a surprise rate hike, maybe a 50 basis point rate hike between the, uh, between the Fed meetings. I'm not sure that'll materialize, but it was passed around. Yeah. In addition to that 50 basis point increase, we may see up to seven rate hikes. So the market has reacted to that. A lot of those high valuation names have come down. And as interest rates have been increasing, a lot of those built-in inflation hedges and more defensive positions that we've taken and that we were talking about at the end of last year, they've really started to perform well compared to the overall market. Josh, the second thing that's really impacting stock prices has been earnings this quarter. And that's companies reporting for both the whole year of 2021 and then the fourth quarter, which, was, which of course was the holiday season. And what we're seeing is revenue growth for a lot of sectors is really slowing down. And um, the market is punishing these companies that were once growing 20, 30, 40, 50% during COVID now can barely grow over 10%. So some business models may need to be adjusted, but we're seeing um, revenue growth in certain sectors really decrease. I think punishing is an understatement. It's been absolutely brutal for a lot of these companies that are missing. I mean, we've, you and I have seen, you know, some really high quality technology companies move by 20 and 25 and 30 percent in one in one day. You know, and that's that's uh, that's enough to make uh, even the best uh, seafaring captain a little nauseous when they're out there. Right. I mean, it's just it's absolutely unbelievable the the movement we're seeing. And and really, I'm interested to get your take on also, you know, we'll we'll have earnings come out and companies seem to do relatively well on top line revenue, and they're still getting pummeled. So what are your thoughts around that? Well, Josh, the reality is that a lot of these companies that grew, like I said, 20, 30, 40% during COVID because their their business models adjusted, they're just not able to do that anymore. And while they still may grow at a high rate, maybe it's 10 to 15%. So this is, so what you're saying, this is really about continuing those growth rates from the COVID or the recovery area. Yeah, and I think expectations were so high during COVID that some of these companies can keep growing like this. But the reality of the situation is things are changing. People aren't online as much. Trends are changing. So, Jack, are you seeing a just a sunset on the on the overall, we've heard it, the COVID trade? Do you think that's sunsetting and, and that's going away? I don't think it's completely over. A lot of these companies have been able to adjust their business models and are still um, doing very well, still able to grow revenue. But at some point, these sky-high valuations, which are assuming companies are supposed to grow 50% revenue every year, they just had to come down. And I think still plenty of good companies out there, but maybe their stock prices have just adjusted and are more realistic at this point. You know, it kind of reminds me of going uh, too fast on the highway. You know, the faster you go, the 
even a little small rock can cause a big problem when you're when you're going at such a high speed. So we got these high valuations, and what I'm hearing from you is that you know if we're not continuing the either either adding subscribers or the accelerating growth or uh, penetrating the markets at the high rates that we saw during COVID, either with a new technology or us coming out of lockdown, that uh, it's having a profound impact on these valuations. Exactly. Yeah. And I think expectations at this point are starting to come down a little bit, which is good. So hopefully um, the volatility will will decrease as well. But for now, earnings, interest rates, some geopolitical tensions we're going to talk about in a little bit, those things are really leading to some high volatility in the market. And you know that's what we'd like to discuss today. I let the cat out of the bag that we're going to talk about volatility, but I think it's really more than what we're experiencing right now. We've talked about a rocky start to the year, but there are many concepts that I feel it's important to remind our investors about during these volatile periods. Many people hear the word volatile and it may be scary. And a lot of people may just assume that the, you know, this means the market's going down right now and that there's more risk than usual. But that isn't always the case. We saw over the last couple of days, these, these big swings in the market, sometimes from couple percent down to a couple percent up in the indexes, which is which is the perfect example of some good volatility for investors. But what I want to do to start off this topic is, can you just define volatility for our listeners? I can. And uh, you know, you know me, Jack, I like to, I like to use stories and, and metaphors and analogies to describe things. I think it make, makes it uh, really helps you remember them. I'll, I'll say first about volatility that volatility is temporary. That's the way I think about it. Risk usually has, or what we're scared of with risk is a, is a more permanent outcome. And let me give you an example. If you watch college football long enough, you will get a gut-wrenching feeling in your stomach as your home team goes from win to loss to ahead to behind to, you know, there's so many turnovers and touchdowns and I'm watching these high-scoring games, but it doesn't last that long and it's over and you get over it pretty quick, right? And there's a game in, in you know, next week. That's a great example of volatility. You know, we have a lot of movement up and down, and at the end of the day, it's not permanent. It's of a temporary nature. It's very emotional. And the only people really interested in that volatility are the bookies making the bets during, you know, during the game or, or <laughs> figuring out the spreads of those things. So volatility in our business, Jack, as I'm sure you'd agree in your position, is really what traders are interested in. It gives us the opportunity to jump in, but it's short-term in nature, and, and it normally isn't permanent. And when you talk to a statistician, we can really get off in the weeds here. When you talk to statisticians, they're going to talk about things like standard deviation and, and other statistical measures to measure that. But we're really talking about movement over a short period of time. When you talk about risk, Jack, you're talking about something a little more permanent. When most investors that we work with think about risk, they're thinking about the loss of capital. And I will tell you the same example I give to my students when I teach is that there are good risks and there are bad risks. You know, a good risk is my 18-year-old son asking his date out to prom. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is she can say no, right? A bad risk is trying to beat barricades coming down when a train is going by. You know, the, the reason that's bad, Jack, is you may save five minutes, but if you, if you don't time that right, the, the, yeah, the, the result... The payoff doesn't the, seem the, worth it. <laughs> the, the payoff, you're exactly right, doesn't seem worth it. But both of those things are very permanent when you talk about risk. If my son does, does ask that young lady to prom, he's either not going to go out with her or this could be the woman he's going to marry. And same thing when you're trying to beat the train to work. I mean, you could permanently get that five more minutes at work because you arrived early or you could be permanently injured. So that's the way I like to think about those two concepts. But uh, it's an interesting question. 
Yeah, and I like how you put that with volatility, how it presents some opportunity. As traders, we are always looking for that type of volatility that may give us some opportunity to capitalize on you know, some good companies that may just have missed earnings like we were talking about earlier, or maybe the market saw things one way and, yeah. and we can step in and take advantage of that opportunity at a, at a better price. It is, but as you imply, the opportunity is short-term in nature when you're working with volatility. I, I would never discourage someone from investing on a day like today if they have a very sound plan and good long-term goals and objectives. Agreed. I want to talk a little bit about volatility in different asset classes. I know I've, I've heard you in the past discuss with some clients, maybe more aggressive investors, that they can expect more volatility being allocated to stocks, for example, versus bonds. So can you talk a little bit first about the maybe the month-to-month or year-to-year volatility in stocks, and then we can go into bonds after that. Yeah, so uh, very interesting. I I, I don't want to get too technical, but when you're looking at stocks versus other asset classes, stocks are pretty volatile from year to year. And when you go back, you know, if you look at, for example, the S&P 500 index, which is, you know, just the largest 500 companies here by market cap in the U.S., I, I can measure volatility through a statistical variable called standard deviation. And most individuals may or may not remember that when they took statistics class, but all that basically means is, you know, basically the higher the number. If I tell you that the S&P standard deviation year to year is about 15%, which it, which it is, it's pretty close to that, that means that you should expect a plus or minus move of 15% off of whatever the average is for that index. And, and in the case of, uh, and I don't have the exact number in front of me, but in the case of the stock market or the S&P 500, which people generally use as a, as a good benchmark, you know, you're looking somewhere around 10 to 11% long-term, I think, since the 1950s. So if you add 15% onto that, you get a year like last year. <laughs> right. And if you take away 15% of that, your your returns are clearly negative. I think a more practical way to think about it for our listeners who might be, you know, their head might be swimming thinking about some of those statistical terms. The way that I like to think about it is if you have five years, a five-year period, which is, you know, the five-day-year length of a general business cycle, you know, you're typically going to get, you know, two really good years. You're typically, on average, going to get two mediocre years where you're not that excited about them. And you're going to get one really bad year. Um, And when you average all those together over the last 60, 65 years, you've seen that 10.5 to 11% rate of return. And on average, it's moved plus or minus 15%. But as most of us know, human beings, we aren't on average anything, or we don't do anything on average. You know, we typically operate in extremes. So while those numbers important, as we talked about in your earlier question, I wouldn't get too caught up over short-term volatility. Investing is a long-term game. Yeah. And I think even within those, you know, even if you look at a three-year time period, many investors may think that's that's a longer time period. But in the grand oh, scheme gosh, of things yeah, you're right. during retirement, it you know, that may be actually a very short time period to be looking at returns or that type of data. Because like you said, may have two bad years within those three and then um, you know, the averages get <laughs> far away from the mean. So well, you and I talked about that. Investors, I really empathize those that have a, they get caught up in short term moves, but I always try to remind them, you know, if you're going to measure the distance from, you know, your work to your home, you know, you want to do that in miles. You don't want to do it with a 12 inch ruler. You need to understand the scale that we're dealing with. And when you're investing, it's really difficult to plan or have any objective goals in the, in the equity markets 
if you aren't committed to investing at least at least 10 years. And I think when you remember that, you just do yourself a, a service, just keeping that in mind. So what about bonds? I know we, we talk about those fairly often on our podcast, but how does the volatility of bonds compared to stocks and maybe what type of investor are bonds more appropriate for? Yes. And for those of you more interested in some of the details, you might want to check out one of our uh, prior podcasts on bonds. We go into a lot more detail there. But one wonderful thing about bonds is, you know, they dampen volatility and they provide income. I'm not as interested in in the long-term growth rate of bonds. If you look at the treasury market, for example, you're going to see numbers on the long-term treasury bond jack of in the five to six percent, which anybody under the age of about 40 doesn't even recognize that as a as a return in the bond market or a, at least a coupon in the bond market jack because interest rates have been so low right yeah for over a decade so i think the most important thing to remember here is that bonds behave very differently and it's because of that income level and it's because they're seen as especially treasury bonds see as seen as more of a safe asset we talked about the reasons why the you know the fact that you're loaning out money versus owning equity but it really has to do with the fact that you're getting regular income, usually every six months, and you're going to get your principal, your stated principal back. Whereas, you know, stocks are all about participating in profits. I mean, you said it earlier in your, in your uh, market update. Part of the reason these stocks are losing value is because they're not meeting their investors' expectations. What's more boring than a bond? I mean, you get a stated rate and you get your money back, right? Yeah, exactly. The investors (laughs) that like that are the folks that are going to want to own that type of investment. What about risk? You talked a little bit in your opening answer about risk and how it can actually be a good thing. You, You gave the example of your son and how him asking a girl out to prom, she could always say no, but she could always say yes. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a good point, Jack. Risk and return, are, they go hand in hand. Academics will tell you that they're positively correlated, right? But what that means, Jack, is, is they just go hand in hand. I mean, the more risk you take, the possibility of a greater return. Usually the things that are harder to do and have more risk are fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> you know, funny how that works. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. Based on that definition, it sounds like we don't really want to eliminate risk from a portfolio, but rather we want to control it in some way. Is that correct? Yeah. And and I think what most investors view as that risk is the volatility, right? Because they're watching their statements month to month. And if you're a listener and you're thinking about this (laughs) in-depth philosophical definition of risk that Jack and I are talking about here, we understand that what you're looking at month to month or quarter to quarter is your statement. And that's volatility. Uh, there are some risks that are smart. There are some risks that are not smart. And there's volatility and associated risks that we can eliminate. And by the same point, there's some risks and volatility that we can't eliminate. The Rudd Commentary is brought to you by The Rudd Company. At The Rudd Company, our sophisticated team becomes your proactive wealth manager, your confidant, and personal CFO. So relax and focus your time and energy on what's important to you. Contact us today at Rudco at TheRudCompany.com. That's R-U-D-D-C-O at TheRudCompany.com. What are some of the risks that we can eliminate when we're investing? That's a great question, and I think our listeners would be very interested. When you look at the types of risks that can be eliminated, we're talking about concentration or company-specific risks. Like, for example, Jack, if you put all your money in a really cool electronic vehicle company that's taking over the world and that its founder wants to go to Mars and you put 100% of your your investments in that company, you're going to have a lot of risk depending on what that company does, the decisions that their CEO makes, 
But one of the, I think, principles of, of sound investing is just diversifying your risk across several different companies. That way, we can start to minimize each individual company risk. That way, if you want to get exposure to EV, if you spread your investment across all the EV companies in the sector or in all clean energy companies or in all video game companies, if one company makes a bad decision, it's not going to impact you as uh, as much as if you own one specific company. So that's just a really simple diversification. The main point here, Jack, that I'd like investors to, to walk away with is the reason wealth management firms and advisors talk a lot about diversification is to eliminate that individual company risk, which causes a lot of volatility. And it causes a lot of movement day to day. You were talking about earnings earlier, and we saw you know the big four or five technology companies come out this quarter. I think uh, two or three of them did extremely well, Jack, but we had one or two that just bombed, didn't they? Yeah. And while you were kind of bringing up diversification, I thought some of the sectors we've seen varying degrees of performance in sectors this year so far. For example, we've seen energy gone way up. The oil prices, as many are probably aware, have gone up and those company stock prices have responded very well. But then we, we talk about those kind of high-flying tech names they haven't done as well. So I think that's another point, even just diversifying at the sector level rather than a couple companies can be very useful, especially in an environment like this. Well, Jack, you're exactly right. And I'm glad you brought that up for our investors uh, because many of them listening right now that are either uh, have money invested or are clients of ours may be wondering, you know, why do we spread our exposure across, you know, sometimes 30, 35, 40 different companies? And you just highlighted the reason for that. We want to make sure that we're investing in growth areas, but we don't want to be too concentrated in one particular sector or a company. And that has to do with limiting that statement-to-statement volatility for the investors that we service. Because it's not so much the risk, the long-term risk. It has to do with keeping our investors engaged, keeping that money in the market, keeping those assets productive, As you and I have talked about on prior programs, some of the biggest risks to investors is just staying out of the market and not being invested when you have these large uh, advances forward in the market, whether it's driven by one company or small group companies, or as you brought up, a sector like energy that we've seen over the last couple of months. Yeah, and then then you get into timing the market, and we've we've talked about how difficult that is. So, um, I think that the uh, one more thing, Jack, before we move on is that When you look at overall risk, and I talk to our investors about this uh, on a regular basis, there are two things that really reduce fundamental risk in a portfolio beyond diversification. Diversification, as we said earlier, will mitigate volatility and really smooth out that volatility from year to year, right, and from statement to statement. But when you talk about risk um, and really wanting to reduce risk, it really has to do with information, and it has to do... Uh, with time. So we talked about having enough time to adequately invest in stocks. And we talked about that 10-year mark is really important. And there's a reason for that. Business cycles generally run from that five to eight-year period. That's not just a number that we picked out out of the blue. The second is, if you know more about that investment, you can make wise investment decisions and you're less likely to get spooked, Jack, on an earnings call if some small variable is missed. You know that company. You've got the knowledge. You're aware, and uh, you feel more confident sticking with those companies that you believe in over time. 
those two things are really important, uh, knowledge and risk. I think they add a lot of value and, and can reduce legitimate risk in a portfolio over time. Yeah, Josh, and I think that's a good segue into my next question, which I have a feeling I may get a, a similar answer to that. We talked a lot about the time horizon, but I want to talk a little bit about specific situations. So right now, we are having some geopolitical tensions that I hinted at earlier between Russia and Ukraine primarily, and we've seen a lot of volatility. And we've seen these specific events in the past, of course, but this one in particular, it's taking up a lot of news time. The markets are trying to react, but of course, there's so much uncertainty. Can you talk a little bit about the impact you think this will have on the financial markets, maybe using some historical data or some things that have happened in the past to guide us this time around? Well, first of all, the events that have happened today, actually, in the Ukraine with the Russian invasion and a lot more certainty on, on where Russia's intent is, it's a tragedy. And I, I'm thinking about the people that are there, their families and, and, and their business and livelihood. And, and uh, it's, it's much more than just a, a data point. But from a financial perspective, I do not believe it's going to put a lot of drag on U.S. investment returns in the long term. I don't believe it's going to be a challenge that we haven't seen before. And just as a student of history, we experience these geopolitical events on a pretty frequent basis, a lot more than investors may realize, because when they occur, they grab the headlines, right? And especially with our investors now, we just came out of COVID and a lot of this is really fresh. And the pandemic was such a large scale disruption to our lives. I mean, not only output, but our spending and everything. But I don't believe anyone is going to change their spending patterns because of the news headlines we saw today. I believe gas prices may get a little more expensive. Uh, it's definitely going to have an impact on on supply chain in certain uh, specific areas, you know, when you look at commodities, things like that. But overall, Jack, these types of geopolitical events, as tragic as they may be, don't typically have a long-term impact on on the U.S. financial markets. Josh agreed, and and we can go look at the historical data as well. I know we in the trading room talk a lot about different sell-offs and how the market reacted, and always trying to learn from history. But the numbers are pretty clear that when we see these type of tensions, usually the market, whether it be three months, six months, even a year later, ends up higher. Of course, a lot of other things going on right now, so that's not a guarantee, but typically that is the case, especially when looking at that five to 10 year investment horizon that we were talking about earlier. You hit the nail on the head because I think the real point that you made is the right one, that these specific events are not in a vacuum. We have all these other economic variables and the financial markets are going to respond to the key economic variables uh, and the changes in those variables. And I I think what I could have better said earlier I think that, that you implied was that what really mattered is how these these are going to impact those those economic variables. When you look at something even as tragic as, as the assassination of our 35th president, JFK, just think about where we were as a nation and, and just a, what a gut punch that was to everybody in the nation. I mean, this man was loved by millions and millions of people. And, and we saw, you know, such a wonderful family and and just the the emotional event and our nation having to go through that. And when you look at the financial response of our markets after that event, and I mean, one week later, Jack, the markets were up. And you look at the annual return after the next 10 years was was amazing. I mean, it's just the financial markets, as tragic as some of these events are, are moving on key economic data points. And that's just the the bottom line of, of how 
investors should consider investing during these periods. And it may not be the most human response. It may not be the most empathetic response, but that's what's happened over the last, I'd say, about 60 to 70 years. Yeah. And I think you talked about it, that initial response. I think it, it, it is very human. It's very volatile. And that's usually where we may see some overreactions. So, Josh, given our discussion about everything today, ranging from the current state of our geopolitical events to the performance this year, what we've seen with interest rates and earnings, what is your investment outlook for 2022? Is there Anything in particular you're expecting? I know <laughs> there's a lot of uncertainty. It's, it's hard to predict. But is there any main outlook that you have for 2022? I know you can appreciate and our investors know this about me. I'm not going to, to uh, do what a lot of the folks on TV do and give you a number. But I will tell you that this year does present some challenges in the environment. It's a year of rising interest rates, in our opinion. We've been talking about this for the last year and a half. We've got commodity prices that are increasing, agriculturals, precious metals, We've seen a lot of input cost. We talked about that. And Jack, your your comment about earnings, I think, is is really telling here because the market is so sensitive to any change on the margin for whether it's subscribers or it's some type of metric that we're watching for most investors is is they're not even aware of. You know, so we've got this tremendous headwind. And I keep thinking about I'm in an airplane and I've got this headwind and I've got these rising rates and we're coming out of the pandemic and we don't have these growth rates anymore. And we're in an environment now where we've got increasing regulation. We've got a lot of uncertainty. And now we've thrown in these geopolitical events. And you know how we talked about earlier risk and volatility. It's increasing the volatility of the market. And so trying to predict where we're going to end the year is extremely difficult. But I think there's always opportunity. Volatility presents opportunity. And so I think it's a great year for those that, you know, like, like us that stay on their toes, that are in the game constantly. And we know the types of investments we're interested in investing in, and we can take advantage of those opportunities. So it's an exciting year, uh, but I do think it's going to be a volatile one. Yeah, agreed. Um, and let's let's end it on a positive note here. I know you talked about, we talked a little bit about the good performance for some commodities, energy, but what do you think some of the biggest opportunities are right now in the market, even though we, we have seen such volatility? You know, our mantra at our firm is about generating free cash flow. You know, I just, I scream it from the rooftops that free cash flow is important right now, especially in this rising interest rate environment. I think it gives companies the ability to adapt quickly. I think dividend payers are going to do extremely well. Rising dividend payers, I think you're going to see quality is going to be extremely important. Jack, you and I are watching the bond market very closely. We're watching those spreads. We're watching the high yield to credit quality. We're looking for defaults. As rates go up, it's really changing the the profile that a lot of these CFOs of these companies have to deal with. You know, they're having to really pay attention now of uh, their cost of capital, whether it's debt or equity financing, and that and that's a big change. And for those of you listening that may not be following me, think about somebody in their early twenties that really hasn't had to pay attention to interest rates when they're buying a car or when they're buying a cell phone. Those are their primary input cost, and they're really going to have to think about that when they're walking in. And interest rates now matter. So interest rates matter, and uh, those opportunities for companies that manage those well, they've been through these slower times, and they've seen this stuff before. I think this presents a lot of opportunities for individual investors to look for the dividend payers and the high-quality companies. Now, let's move into opportunities in our area You know that individual investors may not be aware of. And Jack, you brought that up earlier, companies that have the ability to push through these price increases to their consumers. 
You know, we're all paying more for labor. We're all paying more for input cost. And Jack, I don't know about you, but I get concerned for companies that are selling very expensive products or services or products or services that aren't used as frequently as some other companies. I'm loving the companies that have products and services that we use every day. They're lower cost. They're needed. You know, for example, I, I, I said earlier that, you know, nobody stopped brushing their teeth today because Russia invaded the Ukraine. I mean, that's that's not something you're going to stop doing. I know my wife would get mad at me if I didn't brush my teeth, so uh, I'm still going to be buying toothpaste. And so the companies that make that toothpaste are going to continue to do well. And I think if you look at companies that can pass along those price increases for those daily use companies, Jack, I don't want to give away the companies that we're looking at, but you bring them up on a regular basis. These are the companies that we want to add to that have that pricing power. So I think that's really important. I do want to give our investors uh, something else that we're looking at. And again, I'm not going to be too specific. You know, we've been looking at healthcare the last couple of years, you know, with the pandemic, obviously, and, and companies' ability to, to meet that need, either through increased productivity, like we saw with uh, getting out the vaccine and Operation Warp Speed that, that really got that to us a lot faster than we had anticipated. But we're also looking for innovative companies, right? And I love the virtual experience space. Not just in going out and playing and doing cool stuff and pretending you're somewhere that you're not. But I did want to mention that my daughter went on a field trip. She went on a place that she could never go. I think it was Chitza Nitsa. Does that sound right, Jack? <laughs> that sounds right to me, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, but she was able to go and she was able to experience that. And we're talking about some child in sixth grade. And I, I think back to when I was in college and email and the internet was brand new. And, and I'm getting the same type of feeling with a lot of the virtual technologies that are out there. And it's really exciting to me. And I think there's applications in education, healthcare, a lot of other cool places that investors may not be thinking of. So it may take us a while to see that rate of return. But I'm really excited about what America is able to do with innovative technologies like this. So, Jack, that's as much as I'm going to give you there. Yeah, virtual technologies, pretty cool stuff. But also, I think you hit it spot on with the high quality companies, the market leaders, companies that can pass on their costs to the consumers and grow revenue. That, that's those are the type of companies that the markets are rewarding right now. So well said there. It was a great discussion. Got to talk about volatility and some of the differences between that and risk. And I think we uh, made a lot of progress for some of our listeners today. Well, I hope so. And uh, I just want to thank all of our listeners for taking time to listen today. And as always, uh, if you enjoyed this program, please subscribe to the Red Commentary on Apple iTunes, Google Play or your preferred podcast platform and never miss an episode. Also, if you know other investors that would enjoy this program, please share the Rudd Commentary podcast through email or on social media. We also like feedback on our program ideas for future topics. So like uh, Jack said, on risk and volatility today, if you have the time, we'd enjoy hearing your suggestions. All of us here at the Rudd Company would like to thank you, our investors and our clients for your trust. Thank you for allowing us to be your partner in your long-term financial journey. We take this role very seriously. Thank you very much for listening today. This is the Rudd Commentary. I'm your host, Josh Rudd. And from all of us here at the Rudd Company, invest long and prosper. This commentary is distributed for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Nothing herein constitutes any offer to sell or solicitation of any offer to buy any security. All investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, including the possible loss of principal invested, and nothing herein should be construed as a guarantee of any specific outcome or profit. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any opinions expressed by employees of the Rudd Company are the Rudd Company's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliates. The opinions expressed by guest speakers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Rudd Company or any affiliates. 
Guest appearances on this program does not imply the Rudd Company's endorsement of any entity, person, product, service, or investment. All opinions are current and only as of the date of recording and are subject to change without notice.